Lord, we pray that you would open our mind this morning to see ourselves and to see you in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So you're, if, if you're totally new to faith, you're totally new to the church, you're coming back, you may not know uh, exactly where the Bible comes from. And I want to offer this briefly because I've been sworn to within an inch of my life that the Cowboys are playing at noon. And all spiritual work ceases at the moment that kickoff happens. So I'm going to get this done, okay? But you may be new enough to not maybe necessarily understand why it's important that we're, li- that we're lifting the times, we're looking at the times where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament are, f- are, are fundamentally different pieces of writing that are held together in the church space, in the, in the, in the, in the witness of, of people of faith as mutually affirming the same thing, which we're going to say is the man, Jesus Christ, okay? So the culmination and the fulfillment of the Old Testament is the man, Jesus Christ. So you tell me, is it important to understand why, when, and where he quotes the Old Testament being the fulfillment of everything that the law and the prophets wrote about? It seems foundational to us. We believe that Jesus was the actual earthly human answer to the most fundamental of all questions, and everybody's got their own take on it, but it's always something like this. Who's God? Why are we here? What's all this about? What's the purpose? Jesus is the summary. He is that answer, okay? So if we can glimpse through the ways that he quotes the Old Testament, the mind of God, then I think we should strive for that. So that's the sort of rationale behind this series. If we could capture in single frames, okay, when and where he talks about this stuff, I think what we can have in proximity is promise made and promise fulfilled. If you put those two things close together and study those for a while, what you end up with is Jesus's sort of interpretive lens. And it doesn't occur to me that anybody else's interpretive lens could be even half as important as his. Which is interesting because I've spent my life in church and spent a fortune on this kind of thing, and I've never heard anybody preach through the times Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Now, I'm just kind of puffing smoke at us, but I'm saying it's going to be a fun journey. If you've been here for at least 10 minutes, you know that we love the New Testament. We kind of camp in the New Testament. We love to hover over the message of Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll look at Paul for a while, and we'll dig in, and then we'll look at some of the epistles written to some of the churches in the, that, that Paul wrote. We'll even mess around with some of the stuff that James wrote from time to time. We'll study the book of Acts and the history of the new church, but we will generally hover over the message of Jesus, over the gospel of Jesus. So here's what I think we can say. For us, it's incredibly important what Jesus says, but it's also essential to understand how he understood himself and the gospel to fulfill those promises from ancient times. So this series is our attempt to address that. You've probably heard me say this before, and I don't think this is even, even terribly controversial anymore. I remember... Back in the day when I lived in the Midwest and shoveled snow for a living, it seemed, this sounded controversial, but I've tried this on people recently, and they're like, well, of course, but here's, here's what I'm saying. There's no such thing as an uninterpreted text. There's no access to the text that doesn't go through both the lens of the reader as well as the lens of the writer, and so to get to the gospel is always going to mean a little bit of scholastic work. Jesus himself is interpreting with a particular lens, and so that's what we're after. Our constant struggle, and I will tell you this, as an elder board and as a pastor, our constant concern, our constant struggle is to interpret it properly. Interpretations are all over the map. I don't need to tell you how sexism and nationalism, I don't need to tell you how militarism, I don't need to tell you how overachieving religious judgment is all underpinned by Scripture. You know that. So the work of getting it right is essential, and we work at that with diligence. 
But here's what often escapes us modern folk, because we fancy ourselves as rugged Americans, and if you don't know what that is, then uh, I was going to say go back to fifth grade, but I'm I'm actually going to say that by not saying that, so don't go back to fifth grade. But the point is, we're fiercely individual. We fancy ourselves as automatons, right? We get it right ourselves. What we don't understand is that it takes a community to do any kind of reliable interpretation, It takes a community. Why? Because otherwise the tribe takes on the shape of the bend of your peripheral vision. It's as good and as wide, it's as thick and as broad as your experience. But it was never intended for private consumption. The work of the gospel always gives birth to the family of God, which is a community, which is going to have diverse takes and different opinions and different cultural aspects and different cultural voices. We've learned this, that together we do a better job of interpreting the gospel than alone. And I think that's, that goes without being said. So today we're going to dig in the meaning and mess around with the pieces and try to understand what's going on in the third temptation of Jesus. Now, very brief history. Jesus is clearly chosen by God to redeem the world, but he's living out an earthly existence. He's learning how to build furniture for all we know. He spends about 30 years learning to be a son learning to be a good Jewish young rabbi, learning to innovate within those schools of thought. And he steps forward at the water and his cousin baptizes him and makes these apocalyptic claims, these prophetic claims that this one is going to redeem the world. And then he goes into a wilderness for 40 days. These temptations where he's confronted by Satan, Trey covered one two weeks ago, essentially had to do with where does your sustenance come from? Are you going to take care of your own needs or are you going to let God take care of your own needs? Satan simply says, turn stones into bread and eat because he was hungry, right? Last week, Jen covered the second one. She begged to cover number two and three. I resisted. I put my foot down. Yeah. If you know Jen, you know that's a joke. I didn't put my foot down. I I gently suggested, hey, let let me have the third. Just camp in the second. She almost succeeded. But towards the end, she kind of, but the bottom line with the second one is Satan takes him to the temple. You can laugh. It's funny. (laughs) Permission to laugh. Saturday Night Live, new season is back on the air. Permission to laugh. You didn't catch it, did you? It's worth it. Anyway takes him to the high point of the temple and essentially tempts Jesus with the following. Do something spectacular to show who you are, right? If you are God's son, do something amazing because if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in Jerusalem. You're going to do it from the corner of the temple. That's where people are watching. What a temptation. My mind raced all week. I've had conversations rehearsing this concept of come down off the roof. You know what I'm talking If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. I've had this conversation in multiple spaces where now code language is, you know what, just get down off the roof. Don't be tempted to promote yourself. Just get down off the roof. If you weren't here, treat yourself. You know, some of us speak and preach the word. Some of us literally shape the way community thinks. I don't know how she does it, but that's how she does it. So if the church you come from doesn't allow girls to preach, women to preach, I'm very sorry because I have no idea what you're missing. What I can tell you is Jen has a way of dropping these words that become the rubric through which we think. I think she did that last week. If you missed it, everything we do is on podcasts. You can get that anywhere you get your podcasts. We're going to look at the third temptation now, so let's read very briefly Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. If you're on the back row, I can see you now. I finally broke down and did the 40-year-old thing and got glasses. Some of you guys are like, did you get your hair cut? No, I got glasses. Hey, Matt. Matt Wiley's waving. Look at that. That would have been a black dot with like a drone over its head. I'm a slow learner, you know? I I just don't want to give in too easy. Matthew 4 says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, 
he says, if you will bow down and worship me. Small request. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Interesting, if you know the formulation of these three temptations, Satan is no longer questioning Jesus' sonship. Temptation one, if you're the son of God, dot, dot, dot. Temptation two, if you're the son of God, dot, dot, dot. Temptation three, he realizes he's dealing with a baller now, right? You can't come at a baller straight on. You've got to come from the back door. He comes at him and bait with a whole different approach. Those opening words change. It's as if he and Jesus both understand at this point that we know we're dealing with the son of God here, right? Second thought about that, and this we'll get to this more in the end, but somehow Satan is going to ask Jesus about this little idea called worship. Somehow worship is involved here in some interesting way, and we'll get to that later. Another thought, Satan tries to give away something that is not his to give away. Here's a warning. Don't ever accept a gift from someone who's not authorized to give it. That's how you end up in front of Congress. That's how you end up in coach. You guys don't listen to NPR, you don't catch the news. But listen to me. Satan is offering something that is not his to give away. Jesus can see through that. It's not a gift if the, if the giver is not authorized to give it. That's kind of a noose. And there's going to be a branch somewhere, and it's going to be expected that you follow along, if you get what I'm saying. It wasn't his to give. So interesting that he comes from that angle. Another thing, the magic isn't in the quoting of Scripture The magic and the temptation, the third temptation of Jesus is in understanding what to resist. Okay? Now, if you grew up in the spaces I grew up, Becca's shaking her head because she grew up in the similar spaces I did. If you grew up in the spaces that I grew up, this whole story is about learning how to throw Scripture at Satan. Let me tell you, Satan understands Scripture. He quotes it back to Jesus. The magic pixie dust is not in being able to quote Scripture. It's in understanding what to rebuke and what to resist and what to accept. And we're going to get there in a second. Just like last week, Jesus' trip to the pinnacle of the temple or the corner of the roof. I don't know if this is to be understood literally. I don't actually know if there's a mountain near Jerusalem where Jesus and Satan hiked so they could see all the kingdoms of the world. That sounds to me like a formulation of someone who assumes the earth is flat and the closest big mountain is the biggest mountain in the world. I don't know if it's figurative or literal. It sure would have been fun to watch Jesus and Satan go for a hike. Imagine coming down off the mountain if these two cats are hiking up the mountain. I'd be like, yeah. I was going back to my Subaru, but I'm going to follow these guys. Something's about to happen. I don't know if it's meant to be taken that way, but this conversation is essential. And let me offer you one confession. I grew up in a tradition that talked way too much about Satan. That made way too much of of his voice, of his influence. I grew up in a tradition that nearly ruined that whole way of thinking because every sideways thing that set us back or challenged us or, or made us wonder, or created friction in our marriage, or made, you know, the permits to build the new phase on the church not go through. Everything was the devil in the space I grew up. I hope that's not true for you, but it was for me. What concerns me about that is when we end up blaming everything on Satan. He plays a considerably small role in our Bible, as Jen pointed out last week, and I think it's true. He barely has a role on stage. He's the kid who went out for Shakespeare and ended up being the tree. He's there, but listen to me. I think there's something profoundly immature about making too much of what's going on here by attributing this mythical status 
to Satan. It wasn't his to give, and Jesus deals with him summarily in the right moments. What do we think about that? What happens, and I'm just going to ask this question. You don't have to answer if it makes you feel uncomfortable. What happens if you're rebuking the hand of God in your life? What happens if the very thing you're resisting and rebuking is what God has chosen to mature you and grow you up in Christ? What happens if you're calling that the devil? What happens if you're just a jerk? You didn't get in a fight with your wife because the devil was in your closet, because the devil made you be misunderstood. What happens if you're just a jerk and your hypoglycemic numbers are down because you didn't eat? You just drank coffee. You see what I'm saying? What happens if that car needed to die so you could trust in God, so you could be reminded that your provision comes from God? What happens if you got to catch the bus so God opens your eyes to the kingdom that is before you and the broken that need Jesus? Rebuke that, and you might be rebuking what God is using to grow you up. Now, that's not our sermon today, but we could camp there too. I just don't like language that attributes everything to the devil. I think it's part of our journey early on. And when you birth believers into a space that has this grandiose mythology where the devil's this arch rival to Jesus and who knows who's going to win in the end and we got to pray through, we got to do all this stuff. Maybe that works in the beginning, but I think there's a place where we can move forward and understand that all of this belongs to God. I guess that's all I'm saying. A reminder, and Trey reminded us of this two weeks ago, I think this narrative is primarily about telling us that Christ conquered not necessarily how, as if it's a formula that we can apply, but it's about the fact that Jesus withstood that earthly, that human temptation, and that differentiates his, him from us in some ways. Keep this in mind. The how, we can apply as best we can with the, with the, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but it's the that that happens in the wilderness that matters most. You see, this narrative falls in a transitional point between Jesus' private life and public ministry, so it's incredibly important to figure out what's going on here. But here's the catch. And you know, if you've walked with God at all, you know that he does deep work in silence that he will later pull to the public stage. But it's that work in silence, in wilderness, in loneliness, when you're more than one arm's reach away from the next person, it's that work that matters in this text. Generally speaking, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm always speaking for myself, we pay, I pay too little attention to what happens in quiet spaces. I want the stage. Best I can tell, I've always wanted the stage. I want it to be public. You can tell yourself, well, it's because God's called me to lead. I want to impact people. Yeah, well, I get very impatient when it's all about learning something in silence. We have contraptions. We have technologies. We have systems that disallow the very silence in which God is trying to slow cook the process of our life. So this is Satan's last concerted effort to trip up Jesus right before the temptation. Somebody help Juan right there. Give him a hand. A couple things here. The first time Satan approaches Jesus, he tries to get him to rely on himself to provide for his needs. Here's what Jesus knows. There is no human situation of hunger, want, thirst, or loneliness that God is not already attentive to. God knew the situation that Jesus was in. He's not tempted by that. Maybe the scandal and the surprise of the gospel is that your hunger and your thirst is ever before and always on the mind of God the Father. You don't have to burn the barn down to get noticed. God knew Jesus was hungry. The temptation is provide for yourself. Jesus, nope, the Father provides for me. 
The second approach tries to get Jesus to be spectacular in proving his sonship. How many conversations have I had alone this week about the connection of that mentality as it relates to homeschool people? Don't shoot me. We did it for eight years. But there's this very deep need to be spectacular in some of that space. The foster adoptive space, we're in that too. If you're in that, look at your shoes. I'm not, I'm not blaming you. I'm saying there's a whole group of people who so want to be noticed that they're going to bring their multicolored family into HEB in their massive impractical van. They're going to go to conferences where they literally strut and establish totem pole hierarchies based on who's got more kids and, and, and all this. That second approach, I think, nails us all. And Jen was very, very vulnerable around that. But this third one is totally different. This time, Satan seems to concede his sonship. But here's the temptation. Jesus, let me accelerate the suffering process and get you through this. Let's cut right to the end. Let's go right to walking the stage with your PhD. Let's skip over the classes. Let's go right to the deal. Let's skip over the work it takes to get there. Everybody knew in this conversation, Satan and Jesus, that all of this belongs to Jesus. There's never any question whether or not the kingdoms of the earth and the splendor will be his inheritance. He knows it. Satan knows it. And his, his temptation is this. Let's accelerate it. Trust in me. Let's get us there quicker. Let's take the bullet train. That doesn't work. We're not on the East Coast. I was looking at Chris, thinking of Washington, D.C. When I, when I said that. Let's take the fast train. Let's get there fast. I will accelerate your promotion. Leave it up to me. I'll give it all to you. Forget the fact that it's not mine to give. What he's offering is, is essentially a way to get out of the issue quicker, a way through the wilderness, a way to get there without the cross, without the loneliness, without the heaviness on his physical shoulders of our sin. Think shortcut. Think microwave. Think the fulfillment without any season of preparation. You can have it now, Satan says. You can have it now. But Jesus knew better. You see, there's no victory without testing. And to put it in the language of the working class of Jesus' time, there's no fruit that doesn't initiate or originate in a seed falling to the earth and dying. There is no life that does not come through a dying process. The farmers of Jesus' day would understand this. You see, this rotten, desert, lonely, cold, windy, hungry place is Jesus' finishing school. That's his finishing school. It's the place where all of these callings are going to come to, the, come to the fore before he steps into public space. We know he leaves the wilderness quickly after this, and he essentially goes right into public ministry. But this is his finishing school. Hunger, thirst, suffering, and want. A writer that I read often will say, the great school of discipleship is suffering. And boy, we don't want to hear that. You can preach your way out of a job in Texas saying that. But this is a primary theme for God's people. We call it wilderness. It's always been a big deal. So a couple thoughts about that as we wrap up the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. We could camp here for till the spring, trust me, but we won't. Listen to me closely. There are some very important things that you will only learn in silence. There is no public way to learn this. You cannot learn to, to, to depend on God in certain places. You pull that from the silent, from the dark night of the soul when your soul is being finished through want and through lack. All good work begins internally, alone, away from the crowd, in silence. That's where God grows people 
who can sustain the weight of leadership and impact. Another thing, whatever is learned in the wilderness will go with you everywhere. It always does. It follows. Interesting question. We're reading the words of Matthew. Matthew's not here. Matthew wasn't in the wilderness. Neither was Luke. The two gospel writers who give us this story almost exact, except Luke inverts one of the sequences. He has the temple temptation last. But the two gospel writers that relay this story weren't there. How do they know? Here's how they know. Everything that happens in the wilderness finds its way into public through your language. Jesus talked about this probably nonstop. That's how they knew. That's how they end up with the identical story to totally different people. Because it follows you. What happens in silence, what happens in the wilderness will follow you. It will find language. It will spill itself on the ears of people around you. What we learn in silence becomes a deep part of our life. Another thing, and here's something I wish we could just do nothing but deal with this. God is always near, even in the desert. You see, here's the problem, and here's the theological issue that we have to solve. Sometimes it takes decades to solve. God did not withdraw from you in your season of want. He is nowhere else than near you. You see, the wilderness is not defined by being far from God. The wilderness is a season of testing and it won't be shortcut and it can't happen fast, but God is never far away. He just isn't. I hear people say all the time, that's when I was, I was far away from God. Actually, you've never been far away from God. Resist all you want. Push, run, dig, climb. Figure out what you gotta do, but you are never far from the God who loves you so profoundly. He won't let you be far. Another thing, and this is bad news, there are no hacks, there are no formulas, there are no shortcuts. Be very, very weary and leery of people who offer you the magic formula, take this rock, hit this rock, say this three times, stand on your leg and the wilderness is over. Be very, very weary and leery of people who offer you the way out. Because what we're talking about getting out of is designed by God to make you depend. There are no hacks. There's no shortcuts. There's no levers that say, make it end now. I've pulled them all and they don't work. God can use 40 days as well as God can use 40 years. We don't know how long it lasts. Here is the source of anxiety in our lives. We don't know when it'll ever be over. We don't know if it'll ever be over. There's no magic switch to make it quit. Reliance on God is a journey that we're all on. Here's what I want us to hold space for together. Even Jesus had to go through this. What does this tell us? You're not forsaken by God in those seasons. Even Jesus had to walk the long way through the desert. You see, there's a gap between giftedness and readiness, right? There's a gap between calling and commissioning. There's a gap between talent and deployment. And boy, I wish there wasn't. I think of King David, anointed king who lives in a cave and basically does nothing to self-promote himself for years. Let's not count them. It'll depress you. You don't want to know how long he hung out in the cave waiting for the gap to close between calling and commissioning. Even Jesus served 30 years in total anonymity. We can't rush that gap. We can't bridge that gap. There's no freeway. There's no superhighway. There's no bullet train. There's no helicopter ride. It just goes until it stops. I've been struggling with this all week. How do we encourage people who I know are in the middle of a desert right now. I know people in this room are struggling. They're begging God for financial freedom, for, for the burden to lift. I know people who are 
struggling because the neighbor seems to get pregnant every time they look at each other and you can't buy anything you do medically or any other thing. You can't seem to make God give you the gift of life. It's a wilderness more wicked and cold than any that you've ever seen. I know people in this room who are struggling with depression, with physical sickness. They can't get free of this thing that ails their body. I don't know how to encourage you. I don't know how to keep you, keep your spirits lifted. What I can tell you is that there's no way through it, but through it. I can tell you this. The wilderness always precedes the release, though, and it's the sequence that matters. The wilderness will always come first. And when you least expect it, not as if that's the formula, but when you least expect it, the release comes. And very often your response to that release will be, who, me, God? Are you kidding? Remember Moses in the burning bush? He had been clearly called by God to lead the Hebrews. Moses was ready in his teens or in his 20s. He was ready. He starts taking lives because he knows this is his calling. The problem is did the gap had not closed between the calling and the commissioning. It was years later where he smelled like sheep serving his father-in-law in the desert when God approaches him and says, I'm ready. And he says, no way. The telltale sign of a wilderness journey. You see, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, 3, uh, Deuteronomy 6 in all three of these temptations. And if you know anything about the Hebrew history, you know that that's the fundamental shaping event of the Hebrew conscience. It's this, plucked out of Egypt, dropped in the wilderness to learn how to become, literally become the children of God. You say, no preacher, they were the kids of God. Listen, we, that is both true and not true. We are God's children and we are trying to learn to become God's children as we depend on him. God speaks the future into current reality. We are the children of God. We are the inheritors of the kingdom. And we are also trying to learn what in the heck that looks like. And we're stuck somewhere in that tension. So you know a little bit about my story already. Maybe you don't. I wasted away in a horrible job for 13 years. I say wasted away. But I didn't waste away. My dad still texts me all the time. Remember the quarry. I paid a lot of money to be educated for ministry. And none of it would have been Prepared. None of it would have been successful had it not been for 13 years of working third shift in a stone plant in Chicago. Colder than you can imagine, louder than was legal to have people work, dustier than was legal to expose people for more than eight hours. I've worked in a place. All I can tell you is it ground me to bits. It wore me down every day. Getting up every day and going to that place was a slow, muddy, thick, nasty journey into letting go of any notion that I had ever had in my younger years of doing anything amazing. There wasn't time to do anything amazing. You got to work 10 years before you get your second week vacation. We're talking union labor. We're talking old school, right? After your 10th anniversary, you get a second week vacation. You think you won the lottery. No, no matter, the, you can't go anywhere because you don't have any money to spend on it, but hey, you got two weeks off. I want it out so badly. I want it out so, so badly. Here's what I know. God knew every hurt and loss in that season. He kept score of every slight. You see, the place I worked could not have cared less about what I thought about anything. I'm a thinker. I'm, a, I'm, I'm into why we do what we do. I'm thinking. Grab your shovel and shut up and get busy was basically 13 years of my life. Wanted out so bad. Every single person that asked me, hey, what do you do for a living? I just assumed it was a lead. Let's work that lead. Let's see if they'll hire me to be pastor of something. Anything. 
I'll pastor your dog if that's what you're looking for. I'll drive the school bus. It doesn't matter. Just get me out of here. And I spent half the time rebuking the hand of God. He had me there for a reason. It saved my soul. Because until you release these gifts and give them back to God, there's no saving to be done through you. There's no world to be reached through you. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll chill out. Here's my conclusion because the clock is ticking. There's no shortcuts. I wish there were. I hate what God uses to grow you. I hate it. I spent half my time rebuking it for you. I hate it. I find myself cursing the very thing God is using. But here's the thing. Let's curse premature promotion, not the hand of God. Let's rebuke shortcuts, not the wilderness. Let's rebuke make it quit before it's actually over. Not the provision of God and the sustenance of God in the simple places. You see, the angels were up to something in this story. Did anybody notice what the angels were doing? <coughs> Satan says, just throw yourself down. The angels will rescue you. It's fascinating because the angels do have a role to play. They come to Jesus' side and they minister him when he goes back to the wilderness after resisting the spectacular, after resisting the premature promotion, after resisting the shortcut out of the wilderness, who meets Jesus in the wilderness to attend to his needs? The angels do. Last thought, and I mentioned this earlier. This concept of worship that Satan offers to Jesus. Just do this. Just let me be your agent and worship me. You know, I grew up in a worship movement in Latin America that, man, it was all about putting trap kits on the stage. It was all about raising hands. And when we fought wars over how we sing and what we sing, I'm reminded of all this because we buried the matriarch of the father of, one of, the, of, of that movement, really, in Latin America last week in San Antonio. Saw all these people standing in a room at a funeral of, last I could figure, seven, six or seven Latin Grammy recording artists in the room had come to the side of this woman who was a mission, legendary missionary from the 50s and 60s. Anyway, worship was a big deal. I've heard worship taught from every scripture in the Bible, I, I think, that references the word worship, except this one. I've never heard anybody preach on worship from this angle. Here's the bottom line. What or who we allow to relieve us of those things that produce Christ in us, that is what we worship. Did you catch that? What we give the permission to get us out of this difficult situation, the person, the, the, the project, the thing, whatever that thing is, if it's making money, if it's having kids, if it's winning a Grammy, if it's writing a book, whatever that thing is that you trust in to bring legitimacy to your sonship and your daughtership, that is the object of your worship, and Satan understood this. He says, you let me promote you, and I am your God. And Jesus says, you serve only God alone, and he resisted that process. We can't make it stop, but it can make us look like Jesus. So why would we? So here's our task. Caleb and I talked this out at a coffee shop this week. <clears throat> our task is to be aware and to pay attention in the wilderness. Take everything you can take. Find every note you can make. Jot down everything you can because all of it matters because it will follow you everywhere you go and it will open doors and it will ultimately not prove you matter. It will reach through you to reach others in their wilderness. Take notes. Be aware. Lose nothing. Resist the processes that shortchange the growth in you 
accept those things, walk with them slowly, one inch at a time. And you'll be worshiping the very God who put you in those places. Now, I know that gets complicated. You might say, preacher, you have no idea what I'm in. That's not the hand of God. I don't know. I'm just speaking generally. We rebuke the wrong thing we want out of the oven. I do too. I know you do too. Let's pray.